Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Just a quick note that the annual Uniter 30 poll has opened. If you've enjoyed listening to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast, please go to the website uniter.ca and consider voting for us in the best local podcast category. As always, thank you for listening, and polls close on November 17th. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. We are discussing the topic of transgender liberation today. Just to introduce ourselves, my name is Misha, um, and I use she, her pronouns. Hello, um, my name is Serena, and I use they, them pronouns. Before we start this episode, um, I wrote up a little thing that I think should express why this topic matters. You know, we're not going to debate whether or not transgender liberation matters in this episode. We are coming from the position that it does and that it is an integral part of socialism. In anti-capitalist spaces, there's often an absolute dearth of understanding of queer theory and often a slightly concealed disdain for the idea that transgender people represent some sort of distinct oppressed group of people. This manifests as accusations of privilege, of taking up space, of detracting from the goal of revolution. Real working class people would never care about a blue haired pronoun wielding non-binary person. This is a very hostile form of anti-capitalist transphobia, but more subtle ones exist. Disregard for trans people, uh, viewing them with heightened suspicion, an utter lack of engagement with queer theory or queer anti-capitalism, or a dismissal of the history that queer people have had and how it intertwines with anti-capitalist, anti-state, and social revolutionary history. So... The most basic fact of the matter, I suppose, is that transgender people are oppressed materially and economically by capitalism. We are more fragile economically, with many in the transgender community being devastatingly poor. And those who aren't tend to be highlighted more often simply because anyone with money will get more attention. Many transgender people turn to criminalized activities such as sex work to make ends meet, which brings all the issues of sexual liberation, the abuse of sex workers, anti-prison advocacy, and police, police abolitionism. In non-criminalized jobs, transgender workers are, well, still workers who can be reasoned with, unionized with, drive efforts towards a better working environment. We have our own sets of problems exacerbated due to our transness, often opening us up for abuse and harm from others. So understanding how and why transgender people are oppressed is vital to organizing simply from that perspective alone. You can't organize with us if you don't want to understand us. And on a broader scale, transgender people are marked as an open target for reactionaries. This is something that's happening now and has happened throughout history. The first example that came to mind was then the 1930s, they torched the books of the Institute for Sexual Science, a pioneering queer organization whose support for transgender patients in Germany was revolutionary, pretty progressive 
even by today's standards and to the fascists of the National Socialist Party, deeply degenerate. While there's obviously far more to Nazi ideology than transphobia, I point to it as an example that undeniably retains overlap with the modern fascist transphobe who claims a globalist conspiracy to corrupt children produces trans transgenderism for the purposes of destroying Western civilization or something. In the modern era, we see movements across the world that act explicitly to remove transgender people from office, from work, from social life. While book burnings may not be in vogue, eliminationism directed towards trans people never went out of fashion. Accusations of being pedophiles and groomers stemming more or less solely from the fact we exist and want to exist in the same common space as humans and teach kids that we do in fact exist has become so commonplace that active threats against hospitals and calls for extermination ring out pretty regularly on our American friends' airwaves. These are, indeed, trends spreading to Canada, too. Action for Canada, a far-right Christian nationalist organization which wishes to make Canada great again, is currently mobilizing resources to prevent the, anything resembling queerness from entering schools. And they will not stop there. Fascists like to use trans people as scapegoats, as a sort of ultimate symbol of their perceived degeneration of society. Snap a picture of a trans woman who doesn't perfectly pass, film a public altercation, and you can be assured that thousands and thousands of people will see it and gleefully declare that this is proof that Christo-fascist ideology is correct, that we must be stopped. This is often collapsed into anti-LGBT, and while it is accurate to say that they are attacking all of queerness, and they absolutely will not stop at just giving us trannies the wall, transphobia and transmisogyny are specific ideologies that they are utilizing and spreading. And the fact is, is that they have been pretty successful. You know, Public intellectuals like J.K. Rowling and Jordan Peterson and violent fascists who protest outside drag events or hospitals are fixtures of public life in quite a few parts of the world. And that alone is sort of evidence of how little transphobia is seen as a serious issue. To most, we are a debate, not living, breathing humans, a debate to be won or lost had either on the streets or in the public office, with consequences for its outcome completely out of our control. If you don't care about transgender issues or think that just because you live in progressive Canada that we are somehow safe, you open yourself up to watching as reactionaries ride a wave of anti-transgender violence, of standing by the wayside and having done nothing as a whole group of people are scapegoat abused and legislated against opening all other sectors of society to the exact same thing. And because transphobia is deeply connected to patriarchy, to an idealized vision of a Western world without decadence, the world of imperialist capitalism and misogynistic ownership of women, transphobia won't end there. And if it goes to what might be its ultimate conclusion, it would be just another tragic case in which the left stood by and did nothing, or perhaps worse yet, tried and failed to do something because we couldn't get our shit together. So on that cheery note, uh, we have a whole lot to say about transgender people and the liberation of them. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe just to kind of really drive home like one, one issue that you already brought up um, a bit is there is sometimes a, a tendency to view this kind of rise in transphobia as, you know, an issue of a specific minority that is a quote unquote debate, um, but, you know, is removed from most people's lives or, you know, kind of distant from your own life, perhaps if you're a, a cisgender person listening to this, um, you know, and partly this can be seen as like a lot of people don't necessarily know trans people, but one, uh, key element for how the right is mobilizing transphobia in this current moment is it, it really impacts a lot more than just trans people. You should obviously care about us as trans people. When there's sort of this moral panic going on around people starting, you know, HRT, like as teenagers and 
what the debate around that, that becomes kind of larger policing of all sorts of gender minorities or people who are expressing gender out of kind of these very specific conservative models uh, that we kind of, uh, that the right kind of is trying to enforce in a lot of ways. I mean, I do bring up the fact that it doesn't just impact us all, but you you kind of said something there that kind of made me go like, well, yeah, fucking course, which is, it is against trans people. And the fact that some cis people get hurt by it is incidental uh, and shouldn't it be the reason why you care. <laughs> like um, I, I've seen a lot of times where it's like, they thought this woman was trans, so they kicked her out of this bathroom, or this person was harassed because they looked like a trans person. And it's like, yeah, it's bad because of the transphobia, not because they were wrong. But a lot of people look at that and go like, oh, it's finally affecting me. It's like, it shouldn't have taken that long. <laughs> really shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, and the false sense of security of like, you know, the, I don't, I'm not a part of this group, so it's not going to affect me, but it's like, well, it, it very well might. You, you think someone whose ideology states that the role of a woman is to be subservient to their husband is bad on trans issues, but okay with like butch cis women? <laughs> like, no, it, it doesn't stop at us, but it shouldn't have to get to other people first. <laughs> You know, usually we think about like the US and the UK as places where there's a lot of active transphobia and like clearly like in the US specifically, like a whole lot of like legislation being passed against trans people. In Canada, we are very much not exempt from that. It's maybe a little bit less dominating the public um, kind of attention at the moment. But, you know, you can see this in like everything from like the People's Party to like all sorts of different far right elements that transphobia is a keeps recurring as a thing that is being pushed. Again, the way that trans activism in Canada has historically happened has focused a lot on protecting different kinds of rights legislation, uh, which is very good. We did have like a specific inclusion of gender identity as like a protected human rights category. Uh, There's been like some really great efforts to ban different forms of conversion therapy However, using kind of a legal means is not necessarily what trans liberation is or how we're kind of talking about it. it we would kind of like ex- articulate that as like kind of beyond just like a legal rights protection because, you know, just because it's a it's considered a crime to like, you know, assault you on the basis of being trans doesn't like stop you from being evicted from your home, for example. Nor actually will it really stop you from being assaulted because like the police, the police are not really fond of investigating crimes against trans people. Uh, And I think that if you want to talk about what uh, transgender liberation would actually entail, um, this is actually where a very fun difference between us might emerge because I am completely fuck the state most of the time. For me, I think that you can't have transgender liberation within a state system. Uh, And the reason why I kind of believe that is because if we were to legalistically enshrine transgender rights into, like, into Canada's constitution, if we had an amendment on the bottom of Canada's constitution that said, like, you will be killed if you misgender a trans person or something, like, if we go full, full fucking legal hard on to this, that doesn't stop it from being changed. That doesn't stop it from people not enforcing a law. That doesn't stop it from it occurring. It just means that theoretically the state may have protections for you in certain circumstances. And I think that the real failure of a legalistic uh, reformist approach to liberation of the trans community is that it's a legalistic one. It's a reformist one that seeks to have like the protection of the cops (laughs) Like, the cops protecting trans people? That is not fucking liberation. Uh, You need to have this essentially social revolution, I suppose is the right term for it, in which transphobia and similar related bigotries are basically forced out of the culture. Like, you sweep that shit away. You do something to make it so it's non-viable to have the organization of transphobic rhetoric turn into law. For me, that does include a lot of like trans community defense. That does include a lot of trans community aid, almost a slight trans separatism in which we 
acknowledge that because the state won't protect us, we protect ourselves. Um, but that also has its own set of problems because you you can't just have firefights with every single transphobe you meet. Like that that's not actually a viable way to liberation either. <laughs> yeah, no, I I definitely agree with the, the the kind of aspect of social transformation that needs to happen, like social like revolutionary transformation, um, rather than you know this kind of solely rights based uh, approach. One element of like what trans liberation would look like that I often think about is just like, I mean, so much about our medical system needs to change. Um, don't even get me started. I live in the North of Manitoba. I know. So there's a couple different elements um, to unpack here. One is um, the way that like trans healthcare is usually approached is through something called the gatekeeping model. It's basically this like really just kind of condescending um, and like awful approach that is like, you have to prove beyond like a certainty of a doubt that you are eh, really trans um, uh, as opposed to the other, you know, fake trans people that we have kind of just artificially determined because, uh, because, you know, a bunch of non-trans like psychiatrists decided that it was going to be this way. Um, And they basically try to bar access to any sort of like medical care to people who they don't consider really trans. And then like, so you want hormones, you're going to have to live as a woman for two years before we give you hormones. Yeah. It's like, tell me how that's supposed to work. Yeah. It is a gatekeeping model, but also I think it's a like beyond just the gatekeeping of it. Once you step outside the psychiatrist's office, it's a very violent system. It's intended to like, I, I'm not really kidding about like the live two years as a woman thing, because that's an actual requirement for surgeries and things like that in a lot of parts of the world, which means that you're basically telling this person like you have to open yourself up to people clocking you and being violent towards you. You have to live in a transphobic society um, without protection until we decide you're really serious enough that we're going to give you this thing that'll change your life. Yeah. And it's a form of convert, like it's a conversion practice in a lot of ways. Like it's trying to make people not trans. And then if you are stubborn enough about it, they will maybe give you something. Our, our good cis parents in the psychiatry clinic finally answer us when we ask the same question 500 times in a row. Like it, it genuinely does feel like you're a five-year-old saying like, why can't I get hormones? Why can't I get hormones? Why can't I get hormones until they're given to you to shut you up? <laughs> the thing that all these like articles and you know the guardian and new york times or whatever are freaking out about is that like kids are walking into clinics and just getting hormones and like that is not happening um we you know there's some clinics around that are better or that do like more of an informed consent approach which should be just like the standard um like you know you have be like informed about the effects of this and then you can make a decision about your own body because this is an issue of body autonomy um and i think the thing is is that when, when they get really angry about that stuff one of the, like the primary ways reactionaries work to make trans people and the idea of trans liberation seem scary is by exploiting a lack of medical knowledge like if you say this hospital is giving mastectomies to 15-year-olds and you pull up like one case example of, I don't know, like a 15-year-old who got a mastectomy for a completely unrelated reason, and then you point to their website where it says consultations for mastectomies, uh, you have this situation in which someone who doesn't understand starting the consultation process that takes years can happen when you... St- Uh, are 17 but no one's just going to cut off your boobs because you want them like that's an actual serious problem for cisgender women to reach medical care like they're not doing it to kids if they're not doing it to 30 year olds (laughs) getting rid of this this uh you know gatekeeping model really kind of transforming the idea of what like medical care looks like for people um there's also just a huge in canada specifically like there is such a huge problem with how our our medical system has been like perpetually like uninvested in and like allowed to decay so that conservatives can make the case for privatizing it which means that like even if you have a doctor who's willing to like hear you out it might still take year i mean for my case like literal years to get anything because just 
things have such long wait lists. Like, I, I think actually what might be valuable is actually if I share kind of my experience trying to get care living in northern Manitoba. So when I was still living down in Winnipeg, I now I don't want to disclose the town I'm in because it's like a town of like 15 people. So you'll find me easy if you know what town it is. Um, but living in Winnipeg, I was actually on hormonal replacement therapy when I was 19 to 20. Um it took me about four months to get on it. Uh, and I went into a con- consult with the clinic as soon as possible. And can't like Manitoba's actually pretty good on trans healthcare compared to a lot of other places in the world because I was given an informed consent thing. I was told this is what'll happen. I was told, like, okay, we'll try you out for a few months on this. And if you don't like it, we'll change it or you can stop. Um Still took me four months to have what was two 15-minute meetings uh, and then I get a prescription. Now that I've moved up here and I want to restart my hormonal replacement therapy regime, I've had to wait four months to get a phone call because there's so little resources in Canada that they kind of devoted all to local, like Winnipeg matters. And if I want to get stuff, if I want to get like, work done uh i have to travel nine hours if i wanted to get anything like um laser hair removal or i would have to like take a week off of work if i was going to like go down and start consultations for surgeries and things like that like the website didn't even have information as far as i could find about whether or not they did phone interviews um which is just like I've been living here for like seven months and I've been trying to get transgender health care and the closest place to do it is Winnipeg, which is utterly unviable for me and the other trans people living here because that requires at least a few days off work. It's a minimum nine hour ride down. Um, but because the resources are allocated the way that they are, we fall to the wayside. I was talking with someone recently who does um, trans like healthcare work in the Yukon, which actually is known for having like sort of like the gold standard of like best practices around funding almost every different kind of trans healthcare related thing. There's a lot of kind of weird artificial division between like necessary and like optional things that you need for care, which is just kind of basically like an excuse for the state to like not fund a big amount of like what we actually need. And the Yukon actually will fund basically everything. But the big problem is that they don't have enough doctors and like practitioners to actually offer it. So it's weird. We're like, yeah, like they'll be like, we will fully fund and help you with this process. But like, you have to travel out of territory or like wait forever to get this actual care because there just aren't enough people. There's like generally a really big lack of you know, doctors, healthcare workers in trans health, partly because like people who do the surgeries uh, for trans people are like targeted by the right. Like people, they often can like get more money doing other, other kinds of treatments and are under a lot of pressure usually to like not provide to trans people. So there's very few who kind of stick around. Um, and there's not an investment in like training actual trans people to like do these procedures which would be the ideal honestly like one of the things that's kind of i think what made my first hormonal replacement therapy sessions go so well is the person i was consulting with was a trans dude like that made the process so much smoother because i didn't have to deal with like kind of the cocked eyed brow and kind of like are you sure are you sure about this that i often got from cisgender doctors um And kind of part of, like, one of the problems that kind of sticks personally for me with the way that transgender healthcare operates now is that it is very tied up into all the worst parts of regular healthcare. Like, one of the most humiliating moments for me, like, as a trans person seeking healthcare was a doctor, like, telling me like but you're like such a young strong man you have such like good features and uh do you really want to like wreck that like you 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 can 
you can do so much with yourself now. You can do so much, many other things to be happy. Lose some weight. Quit smoking. Like, are you sure you want this? And, you know, when someone in a position of authority is talking to you in that way, it really does fuck with your brain. And it's an example of like, this very systemic transphobia that exists that is related to the medical practices general sort of antipathy towards patients who uh, step outside certain boundaries. Yeah. Well, and it's this like attachment to this weird notion of like an ideal male or female body that, you know, is, is pushed as like kind of the best thing to have when it's like, well, like the kind of ideal body is like what, what is going to like bring you a sense of like happiness and like what you want out of it. It's not, um, you know, kind of determined by, you know, some sort of like weird uh, external kind of like pressure of like conforming to a kind of gendered expectation in that kind of way. This is anecdotal, but like most people I know who started taking like cross-sex hormones and stuff got healthier. Like they, because they stopped being depressed, they started consistently going to the gym or they stopped eating whenever they felt kind of sad or they, you know, didn't have to drink as much to feel good about themselves. Like they, like it measurably improved their health to get these hormones because they stopped being dysphoric and depressed. And the denial of that really is like a denial of healthcare. Like as surely as, forbidding antidepressants or um, refusing to give someone ADHD medication. It's a denial of healthcare to bring you to like, you can criticize perhaps like sort of the scent, like the way I'm like, I know this is kind of a neurotypical sort of standard of basis that you're looking at, but it's like you, you bring someone a chance to be happy and they take it. And all of a sudden they're healthier and better because they can, handle their issues better like it's it is a very like it is healthcare that gets denied to us very consistently because it's not just about aesthetics mm-hmm. absolutely bringing this back to like our you know initial like how do trans um kind of politics intersect with like the left broadly if we want to call that i think a lot of us like come up across these systems that so consistently fail us that like we experience different elements of how the healthcare system is all messed up work sucks as a trans person you know if you're constantly getting misgendered different workplaces will fire you if you take time off to either like recover from surgery or just like figure your shit out that's uh, a thing that a lot of employers are not like very encouraging of, I would say, um, as well as, you know, experiencing gender depression, how to bring this tangent all together. <laughs> so there's this writer I really like named Jules Gleason, who talks about this idea of, uh, rather than there being kind of an overarching trans community, um, you know, there are these different overlapping trans circles or like different networks of people out there figuring stuff out and, you know, figuring out sense of identity uh, together in this kind of communal way um, and, and as well as kind of like individually and collectively. And that leads a lot of us, I think, to kind of being interested in the idea that, um, you know, society uh, can change, that there needs to be a kind of larger social revolution. And partly this, this results, I think, in a lot of trans people kind of ending up in different like left-wing organizing spaces, um, being kind of drawn to these ideas and, that's kind of a, just like always like an interesting thing that I've, I've noted. And I think is like worthwhile if you're like not a trans person listening to this, but like involved in activism, like another reason why you should like know a thing or two about like us. <laughs> like one, one of, one of those like trans circles you mentioned is actually like, they just call themselves tranarchists. <laughs> like they're just like transgender anarchists who are really into liberation, who are really radical, who are, um, you know, very much so like laser focused on these questions of liberation and what it means to be free. And like, it's not a huge circle, but it's like, there is a 
lot of trans people involved in leftism, involved in these ideas and spaces of radical theory and action. Um, that like, yeah, like it, it's worth engaging with because we're already here and we've been here for a long time. Like ever since like the queer rights movement really got going in the seventies, ever since like, you know, in Weimar Germany to bring up what I mentioned before, like there were, there were queer and trans people there who were radical and who were um, fighting against the state and the way that things were going. And, you know, like the, importance of transgender people to leftist history is often kind of understated because we haven't gone a lot of huge roles leading a party um we haven't gone a lot of huge roles um organizing um in unions or things like that because left-wing transphobia often excluded us from those spaces and i think a really good example of that um historic exclusion of trans people from these kind of movements is if you actually look back to um, the history of like the Stonewall Rebellion, you know, two trans women, Marsha Peter Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are often credited as like basically being the ones who started it, who did a ton of radical organizing, like, you know, leading up to and after it, particularly involved with um, uh, Star House, the street transvestite action revolutionaries um, that like housed different like homeless trans kids and like did all sorts of like really cool, really cool work. And there's a, you know, a kind of like devastating video of the first pride that happened, you know, just like after um, Stonewall where uh, Marsha and Sylvia are like up on a stage giving a speak and they're getting actively booed by other queer and gay activists who are in the gay liberation movement, like specifically like, pushing them out of the movement and it like it happened that way of those two were very kind of intentionally sidelined even though they were played such a huge role in instigating things yeah and now like the thing is is that all of the organizing they've been done has been turned into this queer history mythos of like the first brick at stonewall was thrown by two trans women and it's like okay but how much do you know about their organizing beforehand? Do you think that they just picked up a brick and went to town or were they dedicated activists who were like impactful in their scene? Like how much do you know when you say that slogan? Um, which I have to admit for myself, I know very little because I find, I find the period of queer history just after Stonewall and going into the AIDS crisis genuinely like, too depressing to read about like i i find it horrifying what happened yeah no it is an extremely like difficult period to read about and like i feel like there's often this like you know kind of very like linear trajectory of like you know it started with stonewall and now like queer rights have just been going up and up and up and getting bigger and it's like do, do you like do people remember that the AIDS crisis happened? Like, do people like know the different, like massive, like rounds of setbacks and like attacks that queer people have faced? Do you not see what's happening right now? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like we've always been here and been doing things and like faced a lot of shit while doing all of it. <laughs> what makes it difficult when we're making this case is that like on one hand it is actually just self-evident that transgender people have been involved in history because we've existed for all of history like like literally like you can go back to old english sources and they will mention like men who take on the appearance of women and try to live as women within their society like you can find references to transgender people throughout all of human history um, but because those sources are almost universally written by transphobes, we get written out to the point where it's difficult to even piece together the actual history. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the big tragedies, if you're talking about the history of trans liberation and what it means is like, these people are still alive 
like the people at Stonewall and the people who um, were fighting for trans liberation and for gay liberation during the AIDS crisis, a lot of them are still alive, but we're still basically at the position of archaeologists trying to piece together a history of fucking corpses. Um, and it, it does fucking suck. <laughs> I think that something that might be useful though is like when we talk about trans liberation like transphobia trans misogyny trans liberation like if you're not familiar with those terms or even if you are very familiar with those terms uh you will have very different ideas of what those are and what those look like because i mean a a lot of people try to discredit trans misogyny as a specific thing and b a lot of people have very different ideas of what a liberated trans community would look like. Because there are some difficulties, I think, with queer and trans liberation as a general idea, because, you know, if you're looking at national liberation, if you're looking at economic liberation, you can pretty easily identify the people within those. Um, you can make predictions about like, okay, if you're born in this social strata, the next generation of yours will be also part of that social strata. Uh, you can kind of trace a long history of connections between these groups that exist. Anyone can be porn trans. It doesn't matter if you're like the daughter of Elon Musk, as we found out recently is transgender, or if you are like a street urgent on Victorian England, like you can be trans. And so there's a big difficulty in kind of identifying what trans liberation would look like, given the fact that we don't actually have like a solid group of like, this is where the trans people are. This is what the trans people do. Um, we're very scattered. Yeah. And the way that like trans communities like socially reproduce themselves is like, quite different from you know this kind of like families forming and biologically reproducing like a nation a community or like a nation or whatever like yeah we anyone can be trans um we form a lot of our communities out of like without necessarily being raised knowing uh, this history some some people kind of who like grow up in certain contexts like that is kind of an exception for they might like find out about things or like have mentor figures very early on which is amazing um but yeah often we're it feels like we're kind of picking up pieces um i do feel like though a, a big part of like what trans liberation would look like um in a way that is maybe different than like what a you know a, a national liberation movement would look like there's sort of a more generalized transformation of like how we think about like sex and gender and like relate to one another um that would need to happen for trans liberation to really exists like there needs to be a more general like fundamental change in like how gender is like structured in society which is like kind of daunting i i mean i mean look we're both anti-capitalists we are not opposed to daunting tasks but i i i i, I look at like capitalism and i think like okay there's so many people who are shat on by this thing surely like we can get something going I look at like trans liberation and I look at how cisgender people react to trans people. And I think like, I'm just rattling on the bars of a cage. Cause there's no way I'm getting out of this shit. Is there? Um, because like even like big trans communities, like um, in places like San Francisco or places like, um, you know, bigger cities like New York city, where there are statistically tens of thousands of trans people and maybe even more depending on the culture, like trying to organize specifically a trans movement requires organizing alongside every single other line that you have alongside organizing cisgender people to actually give a shit about your issues alongside also dealing with like the attrition rate that you will get from the horror that is trying to make it through like a transphobic society. Um, and part of the reason why I think it's kind of like important to impart upon cisgender people 
why trans liberation is important is um, as much as I hate to admit, there's not many ways I can see trans liberation happening without the active collaboration of cisgender people. Um, and that's where it gets daunting for me. Uh, it gets like almost monumentally so like impossibly so because you know we are such a small voice trying to convince a much larger body of people many of whom are just like so invested in the system of gender that they refuse to even consider alternatives like for most cis allies it stops at a man can become a woman but that still implicitly has man and woman as distinct categories you are, um, which can be useful in certain contexts, like if you're talking medicalization and things like that. I think there is still like a general reason to understand the biology of man, woman, but also if you stop there and you don't start questioning the fundamental assumptions around bodily autonomy, around gender, around where the spectrum of gender lies. Um, and if you don't start factoring in that it's not just, I was a man, I became a woman. It's not just, I was a woman, I became neither. It's, it is a total restructuring of how to think of and relate to gender. Uh, and of course, every every trans person will have their own different idea of how to relate to gender. Um, I, I have an idea that I think is, you know, pretty good, but it might not work for you, you know? Uh, and so that creates an additional layer of confusion because when you're talking about something so personal and intimate about transition, forming a singular, this is what it is to be trans identity that you can organize around is almost a non-starter. I'm I'm currently um, living in Montreal, and I just went to a meeting recently that of a like political organization that's like all trans femme, and like was in a room with yeah like twelve other trans feminine people, and like I had this that's a big crowd. I had this realization. I was like, I've never been in a room with this many other like trans people before. Like that's like that's kind of mind blowing. And like, that's, this is not a big room. Like there's not a lot of people here. No, like, like I, I said, yeah, like, like I, I was kind of joking, but also like that is a big crowd of trans people. Like, like the biggest I've ever been in a room with was five. I just had a point uh, thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we get our assist collaborators um, kind of, how do we kind of think across those lines? And I'm curious what you think about this. Um, but you know, one, Thing I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, it isn't just trans people who are on HRT uh, is a thing that like a lot of people don't realize, but you know, there's so many, like almost every drug was made for cis people. Like, uh, isn't it um, estradol is used for menopause treatment, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I've had like a number of conversations with, you know, women, cis women who are going through menopause, who are like, we are on the same medications and like, you know, struggling with to get like good information from doctors about somewhat similar things. And that's kind of, we're having very different experiences. Like obviously cis women go through menopause aren't experiencing like trans misogyny. However, I think there's some kind of like worthwhile overlaps to like think about and kind of get cis people to think about like, you know, there's this idea of like a kind of natural gender that you are born with. And then if you transition, you are somehow corrupting that or like doing something unnatural, applying technology to the body. Oh my goodness. But it's like the body is shaped by like our kind of like so many things around us, uh, so many things we've created. And like, if you drink from certain sources of water, you will have hormonal disruptions. Yeah. And like the, the thing to think about is like how to kind of use that in a way that is like, you know, liberating for yourself in like whatever way that is. And like, I think there's kind of, um, you know, getting people to like, like, I don't know, discard this kind of weird idea of like natural nature and, and like against nature. And it's like, I, I suppose I, the most coherent thought I've had on that, cause this is something I've thought about a lot too, because like, like, 
my God, how can you possibly look at a cisgender person taking pills to expand their dick and not think like, my God, you have some gender issues, buddy. Um, um, like I, like, I, I think that what might be helpful with that, like if we're talking long term, uh, if we're talking short term, just sharing those experiences and talking about how these really aren't that different, how there is a lot of overlap um, between the experiences of a cis woman and a trans woman, how there is a lot of experiences that we share with misogyny, with oppression, with um, being infantilized by the medical system is short term a very, very good strategy. Um, it's the only strategy I've found that is actually pretty effective that isn't like for every five days I don't get my HRT, you will lose like another finger or something. Like without going like direct action, full force, like I haven't thought of anything better. Um, but um, I think that like on a long-term scale, there's like this debate about medicalization versus demedicalization. And I think it's kind of a bullshit debate um, because I think that what really we need is if trans people are going to have a good life, you need this revamping of the entire medical system uh, around what I kind of think is like an alternative medicalization. And I don't mean like crystals or anything like that, but I mean like, an alternative way of seeing the medicalization of people where like, yeah, you just need this. Like you want this, you need this, you have this effect you want, you need this substance. Uh, Cause I don't think there's necessarily a shame in needing any given medication. That's actually like an incredibly ableist thing to think. Um, but the way that we have categorized ourselves and made it so that we have these distinct categories of ill and healthy, of man and woman, of in need of medical assistance or not in need of medical assistance, means that there's sort of this means testing of who really needs a substance and the sort of fetishization of purity of like, I don't need this to get by. Like, I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm not sick. And it's really like, it's less about whether or not you're sick or not and whether or not you actually want like certain effects on your body or not. Like if you're dealing with something you don't want to deal with, because like a lot of times you have this sort of, um, yeah, like fetishization of purity and health, which is so deeply bound into our society that like, again, like it's a daunting problem to look at, but by looking at where, cisgender people fall under the same auspices where they're denied that sort of help and treatment that they might need or that they might just want is like a good way to at least start bridging the gap. Yeah. And then there, there are transphobes out there who will like, you know, hear some of these critiques and be like, you, you know, by being on HRT, you are actually just a puppet of big pharma. And it's like, Buddy, I'm an anti-capitalist. Like, I I need the medication I need, and like, but like fundamentally, I don't think that like medicine should be like for profit. It should be for like people's benefits. Um, like it's just one of those critiques. It's like, do do you not think that there's a like a thought about this? Um, yeah, like yeah, like 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 fucking. I I just like pop open my uh my week my pill weekly uh container. I take you know my my ADHD medication HRT and like yeah, buddy, fuck big pharma. Like, yeah, I know I, I had to pay like a hundred bucks for this stuff. I need to be functional. I know this shit is bad, but yeah, this is, this is like part of this larger transformation of like how we think about like, you know, medical care in society is like making it for us and not for profit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, it, it does get to like, this is like, it, it's rude in the same sort of standard, like I've actually heard a few leftists deploy that line, which is really funny because that's a basic anti-communist argument. It's like, oh, you have an iPhone. Well, don't you know that's made with by capitalist slave labor? It's like, yeah, but I still need it. Doesn't mean I don't want to tear this whole thing down too. Like I'm not Ted Kaczynski living in the woods. It does bring me to like the idea of, what trans people do to protect themselves like the reason fuck around and find out is a slogan that is like 
imprinted on trans flags is because there has always been an undercurrent of trans militancy. Um, like you can see this throughout history of like, again, like Stonewall where trans people were throwing bricks at cops. Like that's been mythologized, but it's also true. Uh, you have things like the unicorn ranch, which is like armed trans people organizing themselves on a ranch in like deep South America to protect against transphobes you have um recently there's been a slogan that's come into vogue which is just arm trans women um and i think all of that stuff is you know indicative of like what you were kind of talking about like trans people inherently kind of tend to fall into this critique of society they also tend to be very militant about it. like they like I, the most gun ho people I've met for abolishing capitalism or the state are trans people. Um, and I think that like when you're talking about that sort of community defense, that also has to include mutual aid, that also has to include housing projects, that also has to include trans-led initiatives to fight against transphobia. Um, and that stuff is starting to get a bit more attention um, in sort of the English speaking left because we're seeing people mobilize as best they can, but it does fall down to the same problem of like, there's only so much a community as small as the transgender community can do to protect itself. Um, and luckily to be a bit more heartening, there have been cases uh, where, you know, drag shows or hospitals are protested and you'll see like five or six people holding like signs that say something along the lines of, you know, keep them out or, or like, you know, protect our children or things like that. And then like 150 counter protesters show up with air horns, blasting them in their face and making sure that these fucks don't get within the foot of a trans person. And that is heartening that's good to see because that would have never happened 20 years ago 30 40 50 years never never and the fact we are starting to see this i think shows that there has started to been a sort of i mean cisgender people not fully getting transgender people but still coming out to support them is incredibly vital and incredibly good and incredibly heartwarming to see. Like I would a thousand thousand times um, prefer to stand alongside someone who said something like, you know, I don't get these fags, but let them do what they want. than I would with someone who uses all the leftist language to say that we're bourgeois decadence, right? Like there is starting to be, movement towards this idea of trans people are just a part of society why would you protest against them like this but i don't know if it's enough <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know and like one of the one of the things that i do think of that is is heartening is you know sometimes with this like trans militancy you see i even just think about like the many of the different like artists um, who are trans, who I like, you know, like, or whose music I listen to or who are like creating stuff out there. And there's like this very, there's, I feel like there's often a sense of like, very like kind of confrontational, really just like doing your, their own thing in a way that's just like really inspiring. And I think connects with a lot of people. One of my favorite songs of all time is by, um, Against me. It's against me. Yeah. Uh, this is like the only song of theirs I listen to. So forgive me, but it is transgender dysphoria blues. Uh, and that very good album, but that specific song, like it is an example of that sort of connectivity because it is this extremely mournful rage filled song that is unambiguously and undeniably trans. Like the lyrics are just on and on and on about how much being trans is oftentimes pretty bad, but it also has this message of just very simple desire of just wanting to spend the day with someone you love that like a lot of cis people fell in love with that album, really like it. Art and aestheticism and writing and things like that that just very bluntly depict 
a transgender experience or what trans people need can actually be very useful. Um, there's also starting to be like a lot more trans art. Like, uh, like you can see, like there's been a rise of um, art and song and things like that from like uh, the late and great Sophie or the writer Margaret Killjoy or um, Laura Green Jace, uh, Laura Jane Grace. Um, and that's one of the things that's starting to sort of knit the two together. Yeah, it's one of those things where like sometimes the distinction between like trans and cis does like matter, but I do believe like like everyone is kind of alienated by the gender binary in a lot of ways. Like whether it's like because you experience like different oppression based on your gender or because like you're held to expectations around it that are like arbitrary. And it's like you might have something in common with us in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean. Like I was saying before, do you expect me to believe that a dude who takes black market dick pills doesn't have some serious gender issues to work out? It might not be dysphoria, but he could really benefit from like learning or unlearning some of his expectations of masculinity. Um, and of course, like there is like obviously a role like for cisgender men who are hyper masculine or cisgender women who are hyper feminine. And they just like that. They just enjoy doing that. That's fine. The ultimate goal of trans liberation to me isn't so much like, like some people have this idea of like abolishing gender in its entirety. And I don't really think that's going to ever happen just based on the evidence we have of like no society in history ever actually doing that. But what you can have is this sort of changing of your relationship with it where people are free to explore and experiment and find what makes them content. And I think one of the reasons why, like, I mean, A, before I bring up this next point, like, if I remember what I've read correctly, nose jobs have a bigger regret rate than transition. Uh, but also, like... Um, there's this idea that a lot of people have that transition is permanent, which in quite a few ways it is. You can't like suck in your breast growth back or whatever, but also that it has a fail state. That you can be a failed version of a gender, which is, I think, one of a the core ideas behind transphobia and b one of the biggest problems that we have. Um with getting people on our side because this idea that like, like every trans person has struggled with the idea of like, will I pass? Um, which should not be a concern if you're looking like towards liberation of gender, because the idea should be to make it so that relationship with gender isn't a test, which is the predominant way it is now. It's a, it's a tapestry. It can include all parts of your life. Like I'm, I don't actually particularly shun my dead name or hate how my body looks, but I don't want this anymore. I want to try something new. I want to do something new. And your relationship to gender can change over the course of your life. Like in many ways. Yeah. I, I used to consider myself a full on binary trans woman who wanted GRS, who wanted the whole package and now I'm a they, them, non-binary gremlin who wants to make people stutter when they try to figure out if I'm a sir or madam. To sum up this whole thing, like, if you want, like, what transgender liberation is, like, the question's going to be different for everyone, precisely what they might exactly want. There's a lot of difficulties in, like, organizing trans people, but the main thing, I think, that undergirds all discussions of trans liberation and what means for transgender people to be liberated, if I'm understanding like kind of what you've been saying correctly, is this um, fundamental change to sort of the medical and the social system in which gender isn't as fixed as we currently perceive it to be and access to different transitional treatments and uh, social, uh, social transitions are more readily available, more accepted, and actually not really seen as a super big deal. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. 
If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really, the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity Winnipeg.ca.